Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is August the 5th, 2022, a Friday, the end of a week. Yesterday, I did a Got a really interesting interview. I would say that, of course, because I think all my interviews are really interesting with um, an online journalist, Isaac Saul, who is the founder of Tangle, a really interesting, innovative new startup on, online about news, giving opinions from different perspectives. Uh, we talked about whether or not truth still exists in, in what he calls the in misinformation age, and he concluded that it does, although I wouldn't probably be a pretty truth for most of us. And then this morning, I got Isaac Saul's truth from his Tangle newsletter. He said he's leaving New York and he's going back to Philadelphia, in a sense, I think, with his tail between his legs. Uh, I'm quoting him in his email. He said, I promised myself I wouldn't say goodbye. I told every friend and family member I could that I'd never utter these words, never accept that this chapter was over in a real meaningful way. It was his love letter or the end of his love affair with New York, a return to real life in Philadelphia. And we're talking cities today with my guest, Dwyer Murphy, um, who has a new book out, An Honest Living, uh, which at least on his Twitter page, at least according to Walter Mosley, who's not chopped liver when it comes to writing. Uh, it's a noir love letter to New York City. Um, so, Dwyer, tell me about this love letter. Well, it is in a lot of ways. I think that, uh, thank you for having me first. This, you know, a pleasure to be on and a pleasure to talk about New York always. I, I like that intro because it's one of my favorite subjects, obviously. This is, you know, an honest living is, a detective novel that's the format of it i've always loved crime fiction and in particular that tradition of the private eye and for me what i wanted to do was write a novel where on one level there is the the mystery where somebody has disappeared and somebody a private eye is looking for that person presumed dead but on another level what's really happening is that there's a man who's out walking around a city looking for pieces of it before they vanish. Uh, and so really, this is kind of a love letter to New York. It's about the version of the city that I moved to uh, and for in my 20s, which was a city really of used bookshops, old movie theaters, the diner where you'd go after the movie theater to talk about what you just saw with your friends, subway rides and the G train that never ran, the L that ran in two pieces across the river. And I wanted it to really be about this disappearing city so the novel is set in 2005 and 2006 and kind of thought of that as the last of the analog age in new york where not everybody had a smartphone in their pocket yeah i i like this term uh, analog age we, we did a show um uh last year and I, i'm sure you know this book and this author thomas deidre New York, New York, New York, four decades of success, excess and transformation. And, and I think like Thomas, you're nostalgic for New York that is disappearing. Is that fair, Dwyer? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, 
for me, my formative, I was a, a lawyer before I was a writer and my formative period in the city came in the years just before 2008. And I think not only was that, you know, economically a very important era for the city because of the financial collapse and everything that it brought in its wake, but also because that was right around when, you know, the iPhone was out and everybody suddenly had the, you know, the internet in their pockets before that it really wasn't. And I think, you know, when I think of that analog age, what it really means is that when I left my apartment in East Williamsburg, for the evening, I drew maps, I hand drew maps of different pockets of the city that I might find myself in that night. And it really felt like any given bar, neighborhood bar that you might be hanging out in, the door would open and the next person who came in could very well present you with a new mystery. So it felt appropriate to sort of frame it all in the jacket of this, this mystery, this crime novel, because that's kind of how the city felt. There was intrigue around every corner and the next person who came in the door might be, you know, your wife or your killer or some, some new mystery. Or both, or both. simultaneously, right. um, which we all know you touch on that in, in, in your book, uh, An Honest Living. You write Dwyer, uh, you had a lovely lit hub piece about how to write about a city, which is very much, of course, out of an honest living. It's perhaps not how to write about a city, but how to walk about a city. Has the iPhone killed the act of walking? Or at least I the recklessness of walking? I mean, to, to write well about a city now, do we need to leave our iPhones at home so that we actually don't know where we are? That's exactly what I would recommend, right? But you know, you got to get a little lost, and it's just it's if you are in a city, inevitably there's going to be that cell coverage, and it is almost impossible to get lost in a way that used to be quite easy and would require a series of conversations to get unlost, right? So you you can't do that anymore. And it is what I I thought of this almost as a flaneur novel because I like that tradition of getting out on the sidewalk, hitting the pavement and just walking across a city. And it is, that's not something that many of us are accustomed to doing anymore, but I think it's one of the great pleasures of New York. And, yeah, and it's, like it's interesting that you bring up the Flaner idea. Um, I've had conversations about Baudelaire and the idea, obviously, of the Flaner novel in 19th century France. It goes both ways with the iPhone. It's not just that we watch the city, but the city is watching us. In the old days, yeah. pre-iPhone, pre-2008, or at least pre-internet, it wasn't just that we could watch the city, or we, but people couldn't watch us. We were entirely anonymous. You can't really be anonymous anymore in the city, can you, Dwight? That's, it's very funny that you would bring that up. The next novel that I'm just finishing up revisions will be out next summer is very much about the idea of escape and anonymity. It's a heist novel about a, a fixer who helps people disappear. So. It must have already been in the subtext, I guess, when I was working on an honest living. But no, you're absolutely right that it is impossible. Right? And I think that there is a real fantasy that many of us can like to, to indulge once in a while where you maybe you leave your phone at home and you go off and wander the city and try to disappear. It's a difficult thing to do. You can have a very fun day of it. But a scene that I kind of dramatized in the novel is... Uh, I went to see Army of Shadows, the Melville film, when it was showing up. Film form was the first screening in the U.S. And to me, it felt like everybody in the city was going to see that movie just then. I, I doubt they were, but that's how it felt. And in you know, in the book, a lot of the characters converge on a screening at the film forum of Melville Noir, 
But in real life, I went to see it with my father, who had been in intelligence earlier in his life. And we spent the rest of the day trying to perform little operations where we disappeared into the city and pretended we were part of the French resistance. There's something very French about that idea of the flaneur and the, the idea of like the man who disappears, right? Your book is cinematic on many different levels, lots of references to Chinatown. Uh, and when I was uh, thinking about it, I, I thought of Rear Window. It's not really a noir, but it is a wonderful film about watching New York. What are the, the movies in addition to uh, Chinatown that really influenced your book? So many great films about New York. Yeah, a rear window that you just popped up that I I love it so much. It, to me, that's probably the, the best of Hitchcock, or at least my favorite and the one I've watched the most. Vertigo, which is not in New York, that's obviously in New York. Yeah, I even wrote a book on Vertigo oh. about technology yeah. called Digital Vertigo, which was my least successful book and actually my favorite <laughs> book, which is remixing Hitchcock's Vertigo in the context of Silicon Valley. Um, it's a perfect would you setting. Call, uh, I was thinking about Rear Window, and I'm thrilled that you enjoyed it too. It's not really a noir film, is it? No, I guess uh, I think of those maybe, you know, uh, Graham Greene said that Patricia Highsmith was like the poet of apprehension, right? And I think that, that there's a reason why Hitchcock was adapting Highsmith and that they had an affinity between them because Hitchcock, they're not so much noir as they are dreadful or apprehensive. It's just a feeling that's slightly off the frame, mostly that of fatefulness, I think, right? So they don't fit into that noir tradition of, you know, maybe they have some of the same shots and slanting light and the blinds are similar. They don't quite fit into noir. I think those are more, maybe they come together as classic mystery or just suspense. So, so, so in terms of this noir idea, of course, the hero of, um, of rear window jimmy stewart at least in fictional terms was a photographer so he was watching the city or a certain part of the city through a lens how does a flaneur look at the city or does the flaneur have to kind of look away from the city does it require to use a french term a gaze uh dwyer or, or do you walk around in sunglasses in your eyes shut and just feel it <laughs> I think you're right that that's an interesting way to look at it. It does probably require a looking away, uh, I would say, to be a proper flaneur, right? That it's not a voyeur, it's a flaneur. So a voyeur would be more what we're looking at in, in rear window. Although I think that that is a very urban phenomenon too. I always like that rear window is shot on a lot. You know, that's a set, but there's something that feels very true and authentic to the way he's looking into his neighbor's back windows. A flaneur maybe needs to more like a swimmer. You have to just dive in and immerse yourself. And it's not necessarily a matter of constant observation, but rather of opening to yourself, to the world, to experience something new. A flaneur does a huge amount of walking. You, you, you wrote uh, a lovely essay in which you said, um, to write about a city, you're gonna, and I'm quoting you, you gotta, you're going to want to get out and walk around. I don't just mean a few blocks. I'd suggest putting a few thousand miles over the course of several years, if at all possible. And that might seem a lot, but it is naturally over a few thousand, um, a few thousand miles over a few years is maybe 10 miles a day, which isn't that big a deal in New York. Um, what about this act of walking, Dwyer? Um, 
how do you compare walking and writing? Writers often fetishize walking and, and walkers often fetishize writing. I wonder why. There's something about the movement of it, I guess, that gets your brain uh, in the right space to sort of meditate, I suppose. I think of it, I mean, the same as anybody who does distance running, I think like proper distance walking. And I don't, I don't mean that in the sense of like, you're trying to you know walk a marathon or anything, but somebody who goes out for a good and proper walk, you do reach a certain type of Zen feeling, I think, and the runners feel it too, where your, your worries, your anxieties float away a little bit. I think most writers are chasing that feeling and, you know, they have experienced something of the same when they are fully fully committed to a story and allowing it to take over it probably probably reach that same sort of perfect balanced state that you might when you're out on a good long walk or a good run that would be my guess but it's a it's an interesting question you're right because it is something that fascinates writers i think and for me you know i wrote it constantly into this book because my lawyer is essentially acting as a private eye so in the sort of sam spade philip marlowe lou archer tradition he's allowed to just get out on a day and walk around and cover a lot of miles because he has a lot of people to visit and, you know, to interrogate more or less. But for me, it was just, you know, that's the way I want to experience New York. I've always experienced that that way you put your phone away and you go out with a, a vague task ahead and you just walk through neighborhood after neighborhood. And it's a pleasure always when I, I was going through the copy editing, fact checking for this book, there were a lot of instances where I was questioned about, you know, could you really get from Williamsburg to Delancey street in 35 minutes? And, I had the very pleasant task of just confirming that indeed you could get over the bridge in that amount of time. Do you walk with headphones? Do you walk in? No. I mean, what, what, what do your, do you have traditions, uh, habits in terms of walking or you just go out special clothes, special <laughs> disguise, a hat perhaps like Sherlock Holmes? No, I have a pair of old Nike waffle soles that I, I need. To, that's my, those are my really good walking ones. Although then you kind of look like a rube when you're in New York, if you're wearing like bone white Nikes walking around. So maybe a pair of loafers or something, but you're just going to destroy your feet if you try to do that. So my ideal is I put on my Nike waffle soles and I get out in the city and I no headphones at all. I don't, you know, I, I like to listen to a podcast now and again, like you're so, yours and it, like these you know these programs are great but when i'm going out for a walk i want to be alone with my thoughts so maybe i'll have listened to the podcast or read that book before i go out knowing that and do you do you carry a notebook did you carry a notebook with you do you take photos i didn't know i i don't carry well sometimes i would carry a little notebook in my my breast pocket or my back pocket if i, I had a nice little thing I'd picked up in the city once that had a pen attached that I would make notes. But I think that was just to make myself feel like I was a writer and I was doing some kind of work. Once I gave up that illusion, it, it became easier. And no, I don't, I'm not somebody who ever likes to take photographs. I'm not any good at it. I don't have a visual eye in that sense. And the novel, I think hopefully has a vivid atmosphere to it because I care probably more about atmosphere and tone than anything else. But to capture that is much more of an impressionistic, uh, endeavor rather than a piece of reportage, for example. Uh, later today, um, I'm interviewing Liska Jacobs. She has a new novel out, The Pink Hotel, a kind of dystopian book about Southern California. Not a lot of walking in Southern California. Your book makes Chinatown one of the, the, the intellectual 
axes in the book. Why, why did you choose? I mean, it's obviously a great film, Chinatown. It's obviously a great noir film and blah, blah, blah. And not a lot of walking in Chinatown. And the Los Angeles of Chinatown is entirely different from the New York of an honest living. I mean, there are, of course, secrets, but there are secrets everywhere. Yeah, I think so. The conceit of the book is essentially that the characters uh, are solving a kind of a literary mystery, something to do with rare books and that they've been stolen and our lawyer is put on the case and is acting as a private eye. But the sort of intellectual conceit, as you said, is that they, they begin to slowly realize that the, the mystery they're caught up in resembles the mystery at the, the heart of Chinatown, the Polanski film. Uh, the reason for that is sort of, you know, simple in a way that my my wife and I, my wife was a lawyer and I was a former lawyer. And when my wife was pregnant with our first child, we were staying up late to watch a lot of old movies and kind of work through our worries and anxieties. Uh, and Chinatown was one that we happened to watch quite a bit. And we have this weird habit that we sometimes do, which is we'll watch one of these old movies and then talk about the lawsuits that the characters might have brought against one another. So in this case, you know, Jake Giddies, Evelyn Mulray, her father, you know, Houston's character, the the obscure common law torts that they might have brought against one another. They're called heart balm actions. They don't really exist on the books in any meaningful way now, but it was a way that if you lost your lover or were, were wronged by somebody, somebody stole uh, your husband or wife, you could bring these heart balm actions against the, the other party and sue them in some way. So my wife and I had this kind of parlor game of pillow talk where we would discuss different lawsuits that they might bring against. How many times have you seen uh, Chinatown? Maybe, probably 50 times or something like that, I would say. Yeah, I did the same with Vertigo. I mean, there are certain films which the more you watch, the more you want to watch. Every time you watch something new. What's yours from that era? What's the one that you've seen dozens of times more than you could? Uh, you mean the Chinatown era? Let's say, well, I think of that. I probably Chinatown. I mean, yeah. uh, I mean, anything with Altman. um, Yeah, the long goodbye is probably one that after this that influenced me the most. But I've seen that, you know, dozens of times as well. Let's go back to this idea of this noir love letter. Um, Was it consciously a, a noir or is it consciously a noir book, an honest living or you in a sense, making fun of the, the form? Uh, no, it's both, I would say. So I really, it's a thrill that you put up that quote and that, you know, Walter Mosley was kind enough to say that about the book because I was for a long time struggling and trying to write a very different kind of somber literary novel that I thought of in the tradition of kind of like Achiever-esque New England novel. And one day I was working at the Center for Fiction, this great old institution on 47th Street in New York City. They've got an incredible crime library. And I just thought I need to put this out of mind for the day and pick up something to read for pleasure. And I didn't know that much about crime fiction, but I knew enough to know that Walter Mosley was great. And I picked up Devil in a Blue Dress and sat there for the next eight hours, was completely captivated by this novel that kind of showed me what crime fiction could do and then became a complete devotee of the genre and gave myself a real education in it by, you know, picking up, reading, reading books in this library, this great library on 47th Street, where I later set part of this novel. But coming back to the the, the noir element, you were you consciously? Yeah, it was, it was a very, I mean, 
on the one sense, the voice uh, that the novelist pulled in has a sort of hard-boiled edge to it that is kind of purposefully evocative of certain mid-century private eye fiction, like a Raymond Chandler or a Ross MacDonald type novel, but I think is sort of poking fun at that as well. And absolutely, like the, you know, I would make fun of the things I love, including, you know, probably and be, beyond that, I would make fun of myself before anything else. So I think, you know, that's why the narrator shares more or less a name with me and shares a professional background and knows that noir fiction has kind of bled into his life and so much so that his thoughts kind of uh, come to him in this, this slightly hard boiled edge that he can't quite maintain because he's not He's not a tough guy, right? He's kind of a washed out lawyer. So yeah, the, it was a conscious decision to, to create this noir voice because I also just love it. I love the world weariness, the cynicalness and the ability to kind of crack jokes. I feel like uh, the, that classic noir doesn't get enough credit for being funny, you know, for being having like a real live wire wit to it. And it's it's a nice way to if you want to kind of make fun of literary life in New York and the book world in New York and publishing, one way to do it is to, you know, put a hard boiled private eye in the middle of it and have him observe, observe the book world. What is it about ex corporate, uh, ex corporate lawyers, um, uh, uh, Dwyer writing books, leaving the law. I had last year at Erica Katz, another ex lawyer, she has a book, uh, a new yeah. book, a, a new novel, Fake, which, of course, very much up a, a, an ex-lawyer's street. Was law that bad? I know you used to be a, a litigator. Was it that miserable that it forced you onto the streets to edit crime mm -hmm. reads and, and, and write uh, noir love letters to New York City? I think probably a lot of lawyers have that desire to write a book in them somewhere and that it's all tangled up when they start the law and then you accumulate your law school debt and the only way to pay it off is to go to work at one of these giant corporate firms in midtown manhattan or la or san francisco and it's not it's not the the storytelling version of the law you thought it was going to be you thought you were going to be up in front of juries spitting out folksy aphorisms and you know holding them under your spell and it's just you know it's not that that john grisham version of the law or anything anything near it so you become sort of disenchanted with it but i think most lawyers and leaders especially are probably storytellers and that was one of the things that drew them to the law in the first place and eventually telling stories uh to juries or even to you know boardrooms maybe becomes unsatisfactory and they turn to to writing but i think probably most of us just had that desire early on and some of us are able to eventually find the time and you know inclination to to make it into a book but i don't know my my experience with the law was it was formative it was good and i put a lot of it into this book because you are given access to a version of New York, uh, whether it's corruption or wealth, opulence, you're given an access to these rooms and entree that you never would otherwise. You get to see how the city really works in a way and some of, you get to see behind the curtain and that's a really interesting position to be in. So without 
you know, violating any of your, your privileged uh, <laughs> information. If you can fictionalize some of that feeling of getting to see behind the curtain, I think it's, it's sort of thrilling. I mean, that's what books are, all forms, whether they're nonfiction or fiction. Uh, we did a show uh, a couple of months ago with James Kerchick, who has a new book out on the hidden history of, of gay Washington, which has become quite a hit and very, very relevant today. Is there something uniquely hidden about New York or what you can find in New York as a flaneur wandering around? Is it typical of other big cities, London, Paris, Istanbul? I think big walkable cities like that. I mean, you just named some of the more beautiful cities of the world as well. So it's especially pleasurable to get out and walk. But they do have a hidden quality to them that maybe you don't experience in a place like maybe Los Angeles, where you mentioned before Chinatown is, you know, you're driving around most of the time and there is a different openness to the landscape. Whereas if you're walking through a New York or a Paris or an Istanbul, it does feel like, you know, you're surrounded by buildings on all sides and windows, and there's a certain anonymity to your experience and an, uh, an unknownness to the experiences that are happening quite proximate to you. But, you know, on the other of a window or the other side of a wall there's kind of a, a magic to it if you allow it i think but it can also be quite lonely and probably lends itself well to this kind of flanner novel that we're talking about where you sort of turn your collar up against the wind and dwell on your various mistakes in life as you're walking through the city because there are windows around you that are gently lit and you imagine that very satisfactory other lives are happening on the other side of them or if you're a hitchcock film then, you know, maybe a murder is happening on the other side of that window. And that's also interesting. Yeah, I mean, Hitchcock's beginning in North by Northwest of the hotel. I can't remember which hotel it is in New York. Is also a, a, a magnificent, I don't know what it would be called, a, a love note, a poem to New York. I wonder, I, I mentioned this Kirchick book about the hidden history of gay Washington, which is a, a highly political book. It's a hidden history of gay political Washington, and that's all Washington is. It's a political place, really a small town, not very interesting. The one thing that seems to be missing from New York, not New, your New York, but the actual place, New York, is politics. Do you think there's something unique well, about that? I mean, I guess in a way it might be like Milan, but you know, places like Paris and London have everything. New York has everything except politics. Right. You've sort of, you know, artificially divided it the way like certain countries, Brazil or something have done it. You know, New York is the center of finance and Washington is the center of politics. But I think realistically, if, you know, both money and politics boil down to power that New York has those power centers as well. They're just maybe a little bit more hidden or they require bank transfers before they can kind of exude their influence on K Street and get something done in Washington, right? But I do think that, you know, New York essentially is, and you know, it's a world capital of power brokers. And I think that <clears throat> a lot of what this novel is about also is kind of discovering some entree into those worlds that kind of dramatized one scene where there, you know, when I was a lawyer in New York, this was a few years ago now. So I don't, I, I can't say whether the, these places still exist, but there were still these private clubs in uh, Manhattan where men went to swim naked uh, during the day. And I don't, 
this in reference to the hidden history of gay Washington, whether it was more of a, a Brahmin blue blood cultural tradition that had been handed down amongst the scions of wealthy American families that they would go in the middle of the day amongst their lawyers and bankers and swim naked for a little while to exude some sort of power and to build alliances amongst themselves. So there are these very, you know, odd anachronistic pockets of the city where real power is being wielded that are, you know, almost unknown or invisible to the rest of us, to, to every, the people who are passing that, you know, you could pass that private club a hundred times and have no idea that on the inside of it are swimming naked. Some of the richest people in America doing, you know, making deals to get the Williamsburg waterfront built. You're a bibliophile, um, Dwyer, on lots of levels. You're the editor of Crime Reads and lots of references to books and bookstores in the book. We did a show with Def, Jeff Deutsch last year, prominent, I think he's a Chicago bookseller, has a book out on his 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 love note to bookstores. And, and he argues why the really the great bookstores aren't actually stores, they're places, they're almost like cities. What's the role of bookstores, great bookstores in a, in a great city like New York? Are they essential? And is that the, the nostalgic element in your book, this looking back at an analog age where people spent time in bookstores now? Many of the bookstores have shut. I mean, I guess the Strand still exists, but many of the others have shut, especially after COVID. Well, yeah, a lot. I was just at the Strand. It was great to see how bustling that place is still. But I think the independent bookstores of New York are doing as well as ever. But the difference, the main difference, I would say, is the sort of general absence of used bookstores throughout the city. In circa 2005, 2006, it was still very much the case that walking through Manhattan, you could find dozens of used bookstores in a given section of town. And that version of New York, I think, probably has largely disappeared. The books, the bookstores that sell new books retail, I think, really do have a chance to build communities up and kind of become little cities unto themselves, right? And that's just, I think anybody who's ever spent time in a good bookstore knows the magic of that feeling. To me, I do I do miss some of the the feeling of the used bookshops wandering between them because it was a great thrill. I'm not an avid collector myself, but I've always been fascinated by people who are. And so I spent a lot of time going around to the used bookshops and sometimes rare bookshops and asking a lot of questions of people there and trying to find out what makes what makes those people tick who spend their lives kind of looking through those shelves, looking for something rare or something that has great personal significance to them but they really are these these beautiful little metropolises within the metropolis that i you know it's why we love them i think that's why readers still go after that experience i'm thinking about since we, we keep talking about vertigo in san francisco I, since now i know that you're you know you're a devotee as well but right there's that scene when they need to know something about the city and uh, its history and you didn't have Google back then, so you couldn't just go run search. So Jimmy Stewart, they they head over to I think it's a version of Argozi bookstore because that's the yeah that's it's about the, it's the investigation of Cal Carlotta Valdez the right that's the, the fictional, repository the of knowledge right the heart of the book and that's how you would find out about a city and a person back then is you'd find a bookseller to go to go ask about it. and you can still I don't when I was starting out as a lawyer you began cases 
by consulting with a librarian. That was the way to begin any new search of any piece of information or knowledge. Well, there's a whole literature on books as cities and cities as books, which Dwyer, I'm sure, uh, Dwyer Murphy, you will deal with in later books. Your new book, An Honest Living, a first book, is a huge hit. Everyone needs to read it. It's one of the most important books of the year. It's going to win all sorts of awards. And in this image, you're appropriately photographed as a a wanted criminal. Um, you're more of a wanted writer now, but congratulations on the book. What else should people be reading, Dwight? You, you, you know as much about books as anybody, so maybe I'll limit it to one or two new books that you would suggest people read. As I said, you're the editor of Crime Read, so you read hundreds of books a week. Yeah, I have I the hope. pleasure. My day job is to read to read books. It's it's pretty remarkable. But I'll I'll limit myself to some some crime noir recommendations. But just out this week, there's Amina Akhtar uh, has a new book called Kismet that's out. That's sort of set amongst like the wellness industry in the Southwest. And then Gabino Iglesias has a new kind of horror noir called The Devil Takes You Home that's also out this week. And those I think are really two of the sort of more profound and interesting uh, crime noir novels that are that are around this summer. So I would I would really recommend people check those books out. Those are by Gabino Iglesias and Amina Akhtar. Excellent. I got to run. 